Father, we thank you so much for your great love, for the way in which your love is at work transforming lives. And we celebrate together at the lives that were transformed, God, by your power. And we got to see people confess their faith publicly to you in the waters of baptism. And we praise you for that, God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you changed lives. We thank you that you have changed our life. And we pray, God, that even as we look into your word now, that you would meet us here, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, and that you would do great work in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So there was a story told about a man who went to Israel with his wife and his always nagging and very difficult to please mother-in-law. And while he was there, sadly, his mother-in-law died. And so he went to the undertaker to see what could be done about the body. And uh, the undertaker said, hey, um, you know, with gas prices the way they are, it's going to cost about $10,000 to fly her back to the U.S. But for only $500, we can have her buried right here in the Holy Land. And uh, the man thought about it for a minute. He said, you know, I think I'm going to have her flown back to the U.S. And he said, sir, did you hear me? I said, it's going to cost you $10,000 to fly her back to the the U.S., but for only $500, you can have her buried right here in the Holy Land. And he looked at, at the undertaker very seriously, and he said, sir, I heard that a very long time ago, a man in this land was put into a tomb, and three days later, he was raised from the dead. And I can't take that chance. There was a debate in my house this week as to whether or not I should retell that joke, which I've told again and again. And uh, my daughter, Lucy, who's 15, won, and I think she was right, don't you? (laughs) You know, Easter is about a lot of things. It is about lilies and egg hunts and uh, pretty dresses, and it is about peeps, you know? But, But... Listen, before Easter is about anything else, it is about an event in human history. Jesus of Nazareth, who endured the rigors of crucifixion, who was placed and sealed in a tomb, three days later rose bodily and physically from the dead. And that event has transformed everything. And the risen Jesus who came out of the tomb on early Easter morning has been changing lives over the last 2,000 years. And over the last few weeks, we have been looking together at people who encountered Jesus and whose lives were transformed in that encounter and meeting. And today, I want to share with you one more encounter from the Gospel of John. We're going to look at a dead man who encountered the risen Jesus and who was transformed by the resurrection power of Christ. And the story begins like this in John chapter 11. So Lazarus, who was one of Jesus's closest earthly friends, you know, we don't always think about Jesus having a best friend. But, you know, Jesus is not only full divinity, he is also full and true humanity. And in his humanity, he needed and he cultivated deep and intimate relationships and friendships. And three of his closest, his dearest earthly friends uh, were Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And as the story goes, Lazarus, one of Jesus's best friends, is sick and it's incredibly serious. He's on the verge of death. And so his sisters, Martha and Mary, do what almost any of us would do in that situation. They called for Jesus. 
And no doubt they were thinking, you know, Jesus, we've seen him heal complete strangers. We've seen Jesus moved with compassion, heal people who didn't even appreciate the fact that they were being healed by him. Surely Jesus would act on behalf of one of his best friends. And so they call to him and they say this, they say, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. You know, it's interesting throughout the gospel of John, we, we learn about the love of God in general, for God so loved the world. But here we learn that God's love is also particular and specific. God doesn't just love the world in general. He loves particular, specific individuals with names and faces. Jesus knows you. He knows your name and he knows your face and he also loves you. But the sisters say, Lord, the one whom you love, you know, Jesus, your best friend is ill. Now, of course, it's not surprising that, again, they would call for Jesus. You know, they watched him heal with unsurpassed power and heal complete strangers. So they thought, look, if he can work his power on behalf of total strangers, then surely he will work his power on behalf of our friend. And so it's not surprising that they would send for Jesus. What is surprising is Jesus's response. Look what it says. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, so it says, now Jesus loved Martha and Lazarus and Mary. And when he heard that Lazarus's dear friend was ill, the text says that immediately he got up and he ran as quick as he could to the city of Bethany. Actually, the text doesn't say that at all. Look at what it says. It says, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So someone comes to Jesus on one day. No doubt it took a day to get there probably and travel. And then after that, instead of Jesus getting up and moving on behalf of his friend, Jesus delays. He delays an additional two days and then takes another leisurely fourth day after these three days to get there. Now, Jesus has a plan. He has something in mind, but his disciples don't have any idea what Jesus is up to. And look what it says. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. His disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Back in chapter 10 of John's gospel, uh, the very last time Jesus was there in Jerusalem, in Judea, that area, the Jews took up stones to kill him. And the disciples are well aware that if somebody is going to pick up stones and throw them at your friend, they may miss and hit you. And they think, this is dangerous. This is a dicey situation. They're like, Jesus, I don't think we should go. But Jesus insists. He says, no, we're going. And then look what it says down in verse 11. It says, now, after saying these things, he said to him, look, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. You know, they don't really understand what Jesus is, is, is doing here. Jesus is like, hey, he's fallen asleep. And they're, they're thinking to themselves, you know, they want to give Jesus medical advice. You know, some of you do this in your prayers. You furnish God with all kinds of medical information about the state that a loved one is in. You know, Jesus, he's asleep, you know. You know, he's sick. Give him a little time. Just let him, shh, let him sleep. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Um, uh, he says, 
He told them plainly, he said, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. you got to love Thomas's boldness. You know, they're freaked out about going to Judea and this whole situation. And Thomas is like, look, let's go. Well, as we, where we pick up the story next, Jesus now takes the journey back to Bethany. And where we pick up the story next, Jesus encounters the first sister, Martha. And look at what it says. Chapter 11, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. We wonder, why is it that Mary remained back? Maybe she was too overcome with grief. Maybe she was too upset to go visit with Jesus in this moment. But Martha goes, and Martha then looks at Jesus, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha says something that I think any of us probably would have said in this kind of situation. She essentially asks, Jesus, where were you? You know, I think as a, as a pastor, one of my deepest fears is to miss either a wedding or a memorial service. And so what I tell my administrative assistants, you know, over the last several years is I say, look, one of your top two or three jobs is to make sure that I never miss a memorial service or a funeral or a wedding. I just have this terror of doing that because I can just imagine engaging with the family afterwards and what that conversation would be like. You know, where were you, you know? But here Jesus doesn't just miss his memorial service. Jesus missed the opportunity to be by his bed as he was breathing his last, and they knew what his power could do. And they're like, where were you? Jesus, where were you when I needed you? You know, something we ask of a dear friend, you know, if you're going to have a good friend, you want somebody who's going to be a be there friend, right? A friend that will be there when you need them. And no doubt Martha and Mary are just thinking, Jesus, like we thought, we thought you were a be there friend. We thought you would have been here when we needed you. And so she partially lays the blame of Lazarus' death at Jesus' feet. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But she's not all doubt and unbelief. She also holds on to some shreds of faith. She says, look what she says next. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Then Jesus smiles at her and he says, you know, you just imagine Jesus putting his hand on her shoulder and saying, your brother will rise again. Now, she assumes that he's going into preacher mode, you know, where someone walks up to you when you're going through some kind of crisis and they say, you know, the Bible says, and you're like, yeah, what, just later, later, you know, I don't need that right now. Or, you know, uh, 
I read this verse this week. You might want to hear this. And you're like, I, I, maybe some point I can hear that. Or, you know, hey, I, I heard this sermon and I'm going to send you a sermon because I know you're struggling right now. And you're like, look, I can't hear any of that right now. So she thinks he's going into some kind of preacher mode and says, you know, look, she says, I know that he's going to rise again on the last day. She says, look, I'm a good Jew. I have a hope of the resurrection. I know that later he's going to rise on the last day, but I'm not concerned about the last day. I wanted you to get here four days ago so I didn't have to wait until the last day. And what Jesus says next takes our breath away. You know, if what Jesus says next does not take your breath away, it's probably because you didn't hear it, or maybe you've heard it so often that you've stopped hearing it. But Jesus looks her in the eyes, and he speaks these words. He says, look, Martha, I'm not here to talk about theology. I'm not here to correct your theology. I'm not going to ask you to put your trust and your hope in what you've always been taught about death and life and the afterlife and the resurrection. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. You are looking at the resurrection and life right here in flesh, right in your midst. I am the living embodiment of everything you have ever hoped for. You know, what you think about me is the most important thought you will ever have. And then he says this, he says, the one who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And no doubt she couldn't, she couldn't wrap her mind around everything that what Jesus was just saying. And she's, she's, she's trying to, like, she doesn't understand everything that he says. But listen, you don't have to understand everything there is to know about God to believe something. And he says, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And so first Jesus encounters Martha with her doubts and her accusations and her, her weak but very real faith. And he meets all of that with his own word of promise. I am the resurrection and the life. Well, after encountering Martha, then Jesus encounters her sister, Mary, and look what happens next. When she had said this, she went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. I just love the idea of Jesus calling out individually for Mary. I just think the teacher is here and he is calling for you, Mary. The teacher is here and he's calling for you, Natalie. The teacher is here and he's, he's calling for you, Ben. This is Jesus who knows us individually and personally and who calls us to himself. And so he calls Mary to himself. And she comes and she sees him and she falls at his feet. And she says to him the same words that Martha said, that same veiled accusation, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Only unlike Martha, Mary has no accompanying word of faith. 
She never says, but even now I believe. She just says, Lord, if you had been here, I, my brother would not have died. And we just imagine Martha in this moment collapsing at the feet of Jesus in violent sobs, just grieving over the loss of her dear brother. Lord, where were you? I thought you were a be there friend. Where were you? Why weren't you here when I needed you? And I love Jesus' response in this moment. It's extraordinary. Look what it says. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. This is stunning. You know, here Jesus is confronted by an accusation, some unbelief, a woman who's overcome with her own grief and sorrow at this tremendous loss. And he meets her grief not with a Sunday school lesson. He doesn't try to correct her. Instead, what he does is he sits by her side and he weeps with her. I was listening to a talk this last week with the sociologist Brene Brown, and she was sharing about her own faith journey. And in the course of the conversation, she shared a story about a time when she was little and she was at the funeral of a young child who had died way, way, way too young. And she said she just remembered the pastor got up and said to the congregation, today is not a day to grieve. To grieve would be selfish. Today is a day to celebrate because that child is with God. But I want you to notice in our text that Jesus doesn't tell anyone to stop grieving. Instead, what Jesus does is he sits beside them and he weeps. You know, it's interesting. Why is Jesus even crying in this moment? You know, it's almost like, I mean, if I were there and I knew what was going to happen next, and what is going to happen next? He's going to speak, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is going to come forth from the tomb. And I might just kind of, you know, stand on the side and go, you know, guys, don't worry. It's, you know, it's going to be okay. But Jesus doesn't do that in this moment. Instead, what he does is he sits down next to her and in the midst of this group of weeping people, and Jesus just weeps. I came across this piece of art this week, and I know it's a little bit dim, but it is so, so powerful, isn't it? Just this image of Jesus with somebody in his arms weeping. You know, sometimes we wonder in the midst of our pain and our sorrow, God, where are you? And maybe you're in that place today. You walked in this morning feeling a deep sense of grief because maybe you're going into this Easter season without someone you had with you last Easter. And we wonder, where is God in the midst of the heartache and the pain and the weeping? Here is where God is. This is the God who weeps with those who weep. A while back, I read a book called Lament for a Son by a 
uh, a philosopher and theologian at uh, uh, Yale University whose name is Nicholas Wolterstorff. And he wrote this book as just a series of poems and prayers and laments over his 25-year-old son that was lost in a hiking accident, just this tragic accident. And throughout the book, he talks about what didn't help him in his season of grief and what did help him. And he said what helped him most was not when somebody came him, came to him and to lecture him or to try to lift him up or to, you know, speak words into him. You know, sometimes you feel like that when you're with somebody who's hurting. Like, what do I even say in this moment? You know, and you, you worry, am I going to say the wrong thing? Did I say the wrong thing? And he said, the best thing anyone ever did was they sat by me and they wept. And then he said this, your tears are salve on our wound. Your silence is salt. Or as that brilliant writer Langston Hughes said, when peoples care for you and cry for you, they straighten out your soul. And you just imagine these people who are broken and, and Mary probably just wondering, like, where was Jesus? Didn't he care? And then she looks up and there he is weeping by her side. And all of a sudden it occurs to her, yes, he cares. Well, the story moves on from Jesus' encounter with Martha to his encounter with Mary. And now Jesus is going to encounter the tomb where the now very dead body of Lazarus lays. Look at what it says. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, Lord, um, Lord, I don't know. I don't quite know how to say this. But Lord, by now there's going to be an odor. For he has been dead four days. It was a part of a popular belief in Jesus' day that the spirit of a person would hover over their body for three days, and then on the fourth day, when decomposition would set in, the spirit would depart. And so they kind of had those categories like Miracle Max in Princess Bride. Do you remember that? They talked about mostly dead and then dead dead. Up to this point, you know, in the Jewish imagination, Lazarus had been mostly dead, but after four days, he was dead, dead. And it says something interesting in the text. It describes this in a very, very peculiar way. Jesus approaches the tomb, and it says in our Bibles, he was deeply moved. And the, the phrase in Greek could actually be literally translated, he started to snort like a bull that was ready to charge. And you get this sense that in this moment, as Jesus is approaching the tomb, there is something that he feels incensed over. That there's, a, there's an anger building up inside of him as he approaches this tomb. And we wonder, what is it that is stirring up Jesus so much and that is creating so much anger inside of him? It was John Calvin who said, this quote, Christ does not come to the grave as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. He says, Jesus is about ready to step into the ring and do battle with the great enemy of humankind, namely death. 
And so Jesus steps up and he says, he says, roll away the stone. And she says, but there's going to be an odor. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And I just imagine at this point, everybody who is watching this at this moment just takes one step back. And they are wondering what is going to happen next. And the man who had died, and and, and then he cried out with a loud voice. And he said, Lazarus, come out. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Because there is no tomb sealed so tight that the voice of Jesus cannot enter. And may that be good news in your life today. There is no place in your life that might be sealed so tightly with death or despair that the voice of Jesus, the powerful voice of the resurrected Jesus cannot break in and bring new life. And here the voice of Jesus goes into the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And look what it says in the text. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came out, and his hands and feet were bound with linen straps, and his face were wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Didn't I say, Jesus says, that I am the resurrection and the life? Now, as we see the resurrected Jesus encounter this dead man, I just want to pause and I just want to stand back and I want to make two simple observations for us. Two things that I think we learn from this encounter that has tremendous traction, I think, in our own lives. Two things that I think this this miracle, this powerful resurrection of Lazarus is intended to teach us. And the first thing is this. Don't mistake the delay of God for indifference. Don't mistake his delay for indifference. You know, I think at least one of the reasons why Jesus delayed is because part of the human experience, part of the experience of being a follower of Jesus is to live right in the middle of a great delay. You know, over Easter weekend, we celebrate Good Friday, of course. And on Sunday, we celebrate that Christ walked out of the tomb But in between Friday and Sunday was Saturday, what the church has referred to as Holy Saturday. It was a quiet and dark day where it looked like hope had been vanished. And some of us, we we struggle because we live our lives in the delay. You have prayed again, and God, heal this broken marriage. God, relieve this anxiety. God, lift the depression. God, bring the prodigal back home. God, heal my parents' marriage. And it just seems like we're praying, and we're praying, and we're praying, and it's silence. We think, when are you going to act? God, where are you when I'm experiencing a delay? And in this story, Jesus reveals to us where he is in the midst of the delay when we are broken and when we are weeping and we are grieving. Jesus is right by your side. You know, we do not serve a God who is indifferent, who stands and watches from a distance, but a God who is close. You know, this is not a distant judge. This is not a sadist, this is a God who weeps, a God who suffers not only for us, but also with us. This last week on Good Friday, 
Like many of you, I spent some time just quietly, reflectively walking through this space and just meditating on the different pieces of art that depicted the crucifixion. And I think the moment as I was walking through where I was hit the most was I was over here in the south transept and I was looking at the wall and there was this piece of art from a South African artist. And the little description struck me. It said that here in the art piece, God is pictured as holding in his hand the cup of suffering. And there right in the middle of the cup is Christ on the cross, but not only Christ, but the two thieves on one side or the other representing the mass of humanity who suffers. And Christ comes and suffers right in their midst. And then the artist points out that God gathers up in God's self in and through the person of Jesus, human suffering. God does not keep himself at a distance, but he comes close. And in our story, he comes so close that he breaks down and he weeps. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia where the boy Diggory, you know, this is, um, the, the book is called The Magician's Nephew. I don't know if you've read this book, but the boy Diggory has a, has a mom who's sick and she's dying and he wants nothing more than for God to break in and heal his mom. And so he asks the, 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 Oz, the, the lion Oslan, who's the Christ figure in the story. And he's asking Oslan, who we know has unsurpassed power to do something to heal his mom. And at one point in the story, it says this, with a lump in his throat and tears in his eyes, he blurted out to Oslan, the great lion. He said, please, please, won't you... Can't you give me something that will cure mother? And then it says this, in his despair, Diggory looked up at Aslan's face and great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. And they were such big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great, Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. I don't know where you're at today, but I do want to speak this word to you. In your pain, you are not alone. God in Christ has come near you in your pain. Look to him and find comfort. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. So number one, don't mistake his delay for indifference. And then number two, oh, did I lose my number two? Oh, yeah, here we are. Number two, don't mistake his delay for defeat. You know, it is easy to think, isn't it? That in the face of our worst fears being realized before our very eyes, the loss of a child the breaking apart of a marriage that you have fought to heal and maintain. It's easy to think that right in the midst of the darkest hours of our life, that death has won, that evil and darkness will have the final word. And I'm sure, I'm quite certain that on that day, when Mary and Martha sealed the tomb, 
They thought death had won. Darkness wins. The sickness that my brother fought against has won. Is it always going to win? Is darkness always going to have the final word? Is death always going to have the last word over our lives? But listen, a few days later, when Jesus shows up and speaks into that tomb and Lazarus comes forth, this is going to start a chain of events that will ultimately lead to Jesus' own crucifixion. It is this resurrection that will ultimately get Jesus in trouble and put on a cross. And then after Jesus is crucified, they'll put his body in a tomb. And again, I'm quite certain that on that day, the disciples looked and they just thought, it, death has won. Hopelessness has won. Death held a grip on the body of the son of the living God. But then early on Sunday morning, Christ burst forth from the tomb. And the Bible says that after he came out of the grave, he took his grave cloths and he folded them up, which is just an interesting detail. It was almost to say, look, look, I'm not running from death. This is a vanquished foe. Death has been defeated. Death will not win. Christ, the risen Lord, is the victor over sin and death and darkness. And we gather today on Easter morning because death will not win. Christ is risen from the dead. And his love and his life has vanquished death and darkness. And because Christ is raised, it means your life can be transformed. You can be changed. New life can break in. There is no tomb that the voice of Jesus cannot break into and bring new life. And if you look to Jesus today afresh, you can find in him new hope and new life. Entrust yourself into his hands. Put yourself into the care of the one who has been raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we gather today in victory. You are the God who has turned our mourning into dancing. You are the God who has brought life from the dead. And we pray, O oh God, that today, that as we are reminded afresh of what you have done in this world in Jesus, I pray, O oh God, that you would meet us with your comfort and that you would bring us fresh hope. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, whom you have raised from the dead. Amen.